So like I said at the beginning of the service, today is the first Sunday of the season called Advent. If you're new to this way of counting time, it basically goes like this. Christians for 2,000 years have followed the pattern God established 2,000 years prior to that with his Jewish people to make their calendar different than the society's calendar they're surrounded by. And to do this by structuring their calendar around the mighty acts of God in history. All through the Old Testament that was centered on the Exodus. In the New Testament, when God said to Israel, look, all of that stuff in the Old Testament was pointing to my great work in Christ. They shifted their calendar to center around Jesus. So we count time by the life of Jesus. So the next four weeks, Advent is the fourth Sunday prior to Christmas. For the next four weeks, we're in the season of Advent. And the season of Advent is diametrically opposite to the season our society is currently in. Our society is ramping up its Christmas parties. It's ramping up its consumption. It's ramping up its celebration. Advent is preparation. Our society wants all feasting without preparation. It wants all joy without preparation, all celebration without preparation. But Christians say the period of preparation matters. And so we won't sing Christmas carols in our church until Christmas Eve, the night. Christmas and days start in the evenings in the Bible. That's a discussion for another time. I invite you to go on this Advent journey. And one of the ways I invite you to do this is on the, on the table there just inside the door. And it's actually on the table outside also. There's one of these. It's a devotional for Advent. And one of the things I invite all of our church to do is to read the scripture listed in this Advent devotional. There's, a, there's lots of scripture There's like six passages for every day. So if you're hardcore and intense, go for all of them. But um, but it's not like an A-level, B-level, C-level. It's not like contracting for a grade in Bob Brown's class or anything. If you you only want to focus on one, that's totally fine. But if you only do one, do the ones in red. Because the ones in red start at the very beginning of the Bible... And they hit the nodal passages, those key passages throughout the Old Testament that open up the whole vista of God's tremendous drama. And I invite us all to do this either in our family times of devotion or our private private times of devotion. I invite us all to get ready for the birth of Christ. By following the Jewish people, the Israelites in the Old Testament, as they were longing for the birth of the Messiah. Now, I invite us as a church to do that in our homes, whether it's privately or with your friends or with your roommates or with your family. And as we're doing that, when we gather on Sundays, we're going to take the gospel of Luke and Starting last week, again this Sunday, we're going to walk through very carefully each of the stories, the five kind of stories that precede the birth of Christ. Five because we started a week early. 
And what we're going to do is we're going to come here each Sunday having read through these big nodal passages in the Old Testament leading up the big story leading to Christ. And on Sundays we're going to come together and we're going to focus in on a kind of a a smaller story leading up to Christ. And my prayer, my hope for our church is that this two-pronged approach, right, is that scripture overflowing the worship service and going into our homes and going into our private devotional times, that as scripture overflows this service and, and we're trying to orient ourselves and get ourselves ready for Christmas, both through the big story and through Luke's telling of a kind of a closer up view of the story, That as we do this, my prayer and our hope for us is that we as a community will arrive at Christmas with hearts prepared. That's that's, um, our goal. Our goal is that we as a church will arrive to Christmas with our hearts prepared, not just for the party, though that's important. Getting ready for a party is important. But that our hearts will be prepared to receive Christ born in our lives ever new again. That Christ will come even more deeply into our lives. That as families, we will open our families up to receive Christ more deeply, more comprehensively. My prayer, my hope for us as a church is that God will be our deliverer. That he'll, that we'll be ready to accept him as the one who delivers us. And that's actually what we need. All of us need God to deliver us. All of us need God to come into areas of our life that are crying out for deliverance. So let's go on this Advent journey together. So many of us need God as our deliverer. In fact, in our scripture passage this morning, Luke chapter 1, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there. In Luke chapter 1, notice with me the wonderful deliverance that God is giving out in this leading up to the birth of Christ. First of all, We can see in this story, Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 25, we can see in this story that God offers deliverance to those who are faithful to him. I'm going to talk about three deliverances this morning. First, God offers deliverance to those who are faithful to him. Look in Luke chapter 1, notice verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. You've got to be struck by this. this. This couple that we're introduced to. They're righteous. They're holy. They really are. There's no subtext there. There's no metaphor going on there. They honored God. They were faithful to God. Just like many of you. I hope you know that our church is filled with people like this. 
People who have turned their lives toward the ways of God. I hope that you have people like this in your life. You know, some of us come from a side of the Christian tradition that so emphasizes our inadequacies, we forget that there is a major stream in Scripture. It is possible to live a life of faithfulness to God. And that's what we see right here. Here, it says it black and white. You don't have to know Greek or Hebrew. They were righteous. How were they righteous? By following God's way, God's plan, God's path. Now, the interesting thing about this to me is that they're not like all stars. In fact, their life is extraordinarily ordinary. Their life is about as mundane as you can get. Zechariah had probably lived in the same area his entire life. That his father was born in, that his grandparents and his great-grandparents and his great-great-grandparents. He was from way out in the country, in the sticks. He knew from the time he was born, as soon as he could begin to think and talk, he knew he was going to be a priest. It's what his dad did and his grandfather did. And there was really just no way out of it. This was the family way. And his wife, Elizabeth, guess what? She grew up as a priest's daughter. And whether she decided it or it was decided for her, she became a priest's wife. And what we're told is that they remain true to this heritage. They're righteous people. They love God. They obey his word. And as you can imagine, this wasn't always the case. Even among priests. But it was the case at times. And and yet this whole story develops... Because despite their good stock and their steadfast faithfulness to God, they don't have any children. And you're supposed to read those two things as contradictory. The culture, being what it was, was convinced that children were a sign of blessing. And lack of children was a sign of your unfaithfulness. A lot of people looked at Zechariah and Elizabeth and assumed they had secret sins. That God was punishing them. This was the way their plausibility structure was oriented. And yet, despite this cultural shame that's built up over the years, Elizabeth keeps honoring God. That's remarkable. Some of us fall in front of, of wrong shame. We just say, okay, well, if that's what everybody thinks, I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. Not Elizabeth. Can you imagine? Right? Even though everybody's judging her, she just holds the line. She plugs away. She's righteous. She honors God. She's faithful. And Zechariah. Elizabeth isn't the only one that's barren. Zechariah, did you notice? He's old. And yet he's chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. Here's, you, you need to know a little bit of background to recognize that Zechariah is just as barren 
as Elizabeth. There were 24 divisions of the priesthood, okay? So here's the deal. The priesthood was scattered all around Israel. You lived in your town that you grew up in, and you served the people in that town by teaching them the ways of God and bearing witness to God among them. And twice a year, your group was called to go to Jerusalem to man the temple. And each time your group came to man the temple, they would cast lots, and one person from your group would be chosen to go into this special part of the temple to do this special thing. And you only got to do it once. Once you were chosen, you weren't eligible for the lot casting again. So what does it mean that Zechariah is not chosen till the end of his life? It, it, it means that he's just as unlucky as his wife. It means that not only is her womb barren, but his vocation is barren. Do you know what it's like to be in... Do you know what casting lots mean? It's the Israelite way of God picking somebody. It's not drawing straws who gets lucky. It's the Jewish way of saying God will pick. Do you know what it's like to not be picked by God? Year after year after year after year. Do you see the whole story sets up attention to those with cultural knowledge. They were righteous and they obeyed God. But she's barren. And he doesn't get chosen ever by God? Wait a minute. But God is saying to us, they are. They are righteous. They are holy. Finally, on this day, here is Zechariah and he's chosen. It's remarkable to me to think about this, that in the middle of a long obedience, not even in the middle, at the end of a long obedience, both for Elizabeth, And for Zechariah, God invites them to participate with him and his work. That's the deliverance. God offers faithful people the opportunity to participate with him and his great work in this world. And the same is true today. See, this is, a, this is an amazing thing about Luke's gospel. All through Luke's gospel, there's this twin dynamic. God intervening in human affairs, but not in some deus ex machina kind of way. Not like he just enters in and people have nothing to do with it. But he enters in and he invites people to partner with him. In fact, God's work turns out to be an invitation to his faithful ones to partner with him in that work. It's not just that God rescued the world. God is working and he's giving people a chance to partner with him in that work. This miraculous, redemptive activity of God calls forth human response. Human participation, human partnership. Zachariah's obedience matters. It positions him to be the type of person who can respond. Elizabeth's obedience matters. She is the type of person whom God wants to partner with. So let's be faithful. Let's be obedient to God. Don't we, as a church... Don't we want to be invited by God to join him in his work of healing this city and this valley? 
Don't you want to be invited by God to partner with him in his work of, of bringing life to the death places in your neighborhood and in your job and in your family? One of the ways we position ourselves so that we can be invited by God into his life-giving, creation-renewing, healing work is by living lives of faithful obedience. This is, we're supposed to look up to Zechariah and Elizabeth and see them as models. To see them as people who just kept plugging away in ordinary lives, in mundane lives, in backwater places, ordinary people who are never going to change the world, ordinary people who were never picked for the all-star team. They didn't graduate first in their class. They didn't get big scholarships. They just have grunt-level positions at, at kind of jobs that just keep the society moving along. And they walked it out in faithfulness. And at the end of a very long uneventful obedience, God shows up and shatters all expectations. What we're seeing here, we're supposed to look at this and say, you know what? That's not the only time God has acted that way. In fact, those of you who read the Bible, what other stories do you hear echoed in this story? Yeah, one of them we read right before the service. Abraham, do you know, I counted no less, I, can't, I, I stopped counting at 44 moments in Luke's story where he makes a quote or an illusion or he draws on an action or a mood that's in Genesis 12 through 22, the life of Abraham. No less than 44 times. But it's not just echoing Abraham's life, right? In Abraham's life, Sarah, chapter 11, verse 23, I think, Sarah was barren, right? It's not just Abraham's life. What else is echoed in this story? What other Old Testament stories do we hear echoed? That's right, 1 Samuel. Hannah, crying out to God in her barrenness and God giving her a child. Luke's story is an echo chamber of the Old Testament. I'm going to talk more about that in a minute. But what I want you to see here is that Luke is saying, this is how God acts. It's not new. God chooses the faithful. And he invites them in miraculous, shocking, out of the blue moments to join him in his work of redemption. So hold the line. Be faithful. Be obedient. Let's confess our sins in Advent. Let's let's allow the Spirit of God to ferret out the dark places in our life. Is there sin in your life that you're just kind of minding, letting exist? Have you stopped striving against it? Isn't Advent a great time to look at Zechariah and Elizabeth and to say, God cares about righteousness. God does care about my holiness. God does care about my obedience to his ways and his standards. Isn't it a great time for all of us over the next four weeks to say to God, would you please deliver me 
from my sin. Deliver me. Help me to become a righteous person, a person walking in your ways. But for lots of reasons, because it pleases you, God, and also because it positions me to better receive your invitation to partner with you in the remaking of all things through the Son in the power of the Spirit. That's the first deliverance we see. The second deliverance, notice how God offers deliverance to those who suffer. Not only to the faithful, but also to the suffering. He does this with Elizabeth, doesn't he? Did you you see how the the story ended? Uh, Verse 24, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and for five months she kept herself hidden saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. God, here's the deliverance. God, to the faithful, God offers partnership. To the suffering, God offers favor. Isn't that what it is? He gives favor to Elizabeth. God offers favor to those who suffer. Didn't Jesus tell us this? Blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. God himself will comfort them. Isn't that what's going on here? In our culture, barrenness is painful. In that culture, barrenness was painful and shameful. I mean, take whatever Janelle and I struggled for a number of years to get pregnant. As some of you know, God (laughs) overcame that. It was hard. And our, our barrenness only lasted, I don't know, two or three years. But people who go for this for a long, it's, 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 it's almost unmentionable if you know somebody who's, who's really gone through this. Can you, can you take that and put it in a culture where it automatically means that you are a bad person? Can you imagine how that ratchets up the pain? Do you see how God's favor? Look what it says at the end. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Do you see how God's favor is set over against her community's disfavor? Do do you see how God offers grace over against the disgrace she experienced in her community? One of the things that struck me this week about this passage is that Luke is doing two things. He's talking both about how God is making all things new, but he's not losing the discrete individual stories of the people involved. This is not like John's gospel, right? John's gospel starts out really big. In the beginning was the word and the word was God. The word. I mean, it's huge. It's cosmic. But Luke's gospel says, wait a minute, John. God doesn't forget us. When he's making all things new. Do you see how God actually cares about Elizabeth's suffering? So many of us suffer. And if you're not careful. You can fall into lots of traps in this world. And one of the traps is that Christianity is about the objective work of Christ 
It's about what God is doing in the world. And you can so emphasize that that you forget it's also about what God is doing right now in your life, in your own barrenness. Are you barren? Are you vocationally barren? Like Zechariah? Is there a physical barrenness in your life? It, you, know, you know, it's the, the, the story of the Bible is the story of God making this world good and evil breaking and twisting and defacing and deforming this world. And the tentacles of evil reaching into all areas of life. Where, where has the pain of a broken creation expressed itself in your life? Is it in your own body? You know, I, I think about Alan and his cancer. And the Trainums, Donna's mother, passed away Thanksgiving morning. Who among us is not touched? And even among us right now is Alan, whom cancer is turning against. That's awful. We should rage against that. We should hate that. God did not make us for that. And what about those of us in this room who had terrible experiences for Thanksgiving? Because we're a part of a toxic family. And the, and, and, the, and the twisting of evil is reached in our families. And it is twisted and deformed. And, and, and some of you, like me, I got to go be in a stress-free environment. It, it was just, I have, I was, I'm so gifted by my sister and her family. They're so gentle and so kind and so easy to be around. Our trip to, and while we were there and back from from my sisters, it, w- it was a gift of respite. But I know that not all of us get that. Where is the barrenness in your life? I love my job. <laughs> I have a great job. Some of you hate your job. It's mundane. You can't conceive of how it matters at all. You can easily conceive of how if you left, nobody in the world would know. Is that where your barrenness is broken? Breaking through? Where is barrenness in your life? And what we see here is that God cares. And what we see in Elizabeth, we see in Elizabeth a very real example. Not a metaphor, an example. God actually healed her barrenness. God does that. He delivers the suffering by giving them favor. Do you long for that? Do you long for God's favor? Do you long for God and his great power and life giving mercy and grace to reach into your life and to find the parts of your life where, they, where it is barren? Do you long for him to do for you what he did for Elizabeth? Then ask him. Cry out to him. Go for it. Pray like it matters. Did you hear what the angel Gabriel said to Zechariah? I have heard your prayers. Is God hearing your prayers? He is if you're praying them. Are you praying them? Go for it. Ask him for your heart's desire. 
And we see in Elizabeth, and it's not just Elizabeth, there are many people in this room who I could stop right now and we could go for hours with person after person talking about how God has done just that time after time in their life. And I'm sure that we could also go through this room and find a lot of us who are 30 years behind Elizabeth, still asking, still suffering, still hoping. And it might, his deliverance might come this life, but it might not come until kingdom come. He doesn't heal every barren wound in the Bible. And that's not supposed to create some conundrum. It's just supposed to show us that there are signs of new creation among us even now. And all of them are supposed to create in us a longing for the Lord Jesus to return when every tear is wiped away. And every barrenness is healed. We cry out for it now, but we live in hope that even if it doesn't happen now, it will happen. Every vestige of evil will be removed from our lives. Every memory of evil will be healed. This is what we see. What God did in Elizabeth, he did in Jesus Christ. In the barrenness of the ground. Dead. Lifeless. But he rose again. Conquering death and evil. As the first fruits to say to us, to all of us, our bodies will be healed. We will be raised incorruptible. This earth will be healed. This valley will be healed. This city will be healed. And so we look at Elizabeth. We cry out for it in our own lives. And we have the confidence that indeed that renewal that occurred to her will spread itself through this whole world. Evil cannot hide. God and his love and his life will triumph. God will deliver the sufferers with favor. Some now and some in kingdom come. The third deliverance that we see in this passage is that God delivers the doubters. Who, who doubted in this passage? Anybody? Who? Zachariah. It's actually funny. Look, when the Bible's funny, you should laugh. I mean, isn't that, I, can't you see Gabriel putting his hands on his hips and saying, do you know who you're talking to? I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. So here's the deal, dude. No more words from your mouth. Zip it. And then he walks out. I mean, isn't it funny? Everybody's like, where have you been? What have you been doing? And he can't talk. Which is just God getting him even more. Like, yeah, don't you wish you could talk now? Nope, you can't. He's making sign language. We read this passage. Sloan and I read this a couple of days ago together. And Sloan, Sloan loves sign language. I, I don't know why. Sloan's at home sick right now. You can pray for him. He has um, the flu, we think. Um, Sloan loves sign language. A couple of months ago, he started getting sign language books from the um, library. And he has races on how fast he can do the alphabet. He said, Daddy. They knew sign language back then. I'm not sure. What's it called? American sign languages. I'm not sure it's that version. But he did something. This is funny. It's supposed to be funny. You're supposed to laugh at Zechariah. Like an angel shows up out of the blue. And you say, how do I know this is for real? Right? Like 
Haven't we already crossed the bridge into the miraculous? Now, here's the deal. Some of you in this church are faithful. Some of you in this church are suffering. Some of you in this church doubt. What we see in Zacharias, he's both. He's faithful and he doubts. Right? I mean, it's possible. And I know about some of you because I'm your priest. You come and talk to me. I'm so amazed by by some people in this church who have just an, an ounce of faith, but they've held on to that like with their fingernails for decades. Zechariah doubted. Look, I, we live in a strange moment in time. I've told you this before. 500 years ago, it was virtually impossible not to believe in Jesus. I mean, even though the kings and lots of religious leaders 500 years ago... Um, Even though they acted like hypocrites, you don't ever read of people struggling with doubt 500 years ago. It was virtually impossible not to believe. But we live in a moment in time where for many of us, it's virtually impossible to believe. Elizabeth was being ravaged by a barren womb out of her control. And some of us in this church are ravaged by the plausibility structure of a society that makes it virtually impossible to believe. And it's not your fault. It's hard to believe for some people. And it's not because of sin. For some people, that's the cross they bear. Now, notice how God graciously deals with Zachariah's doubt. I mean, it's kind of tricky here, isn't it? Because his dealing with the doubt is both a punishment and a grace. It's a gracious punishment. He actually says, okay, you don't believe me. Here's the deal. I'm going to make it so that you can't talk. Until the baby's born. And then when the baby's born, you're going to know that I keep my word. So starting from now, you can't talk. And I think in that instant, Zechariah was like, oh, okay, this is going to happen. Right? Because he can't talk. There's a punishment issue going on there. I I don't really want so much to deal with that right now. But what I do want to show you is that he loved God. He was faithful to God. And yet it was hard for him to take God at his word in this moment. And God offered him confidence. Now, I want to back up from that. I want to just, I want to think on a larger level about this passage of scripture. Look at Luke chapter one, verse four. These things are written that you may have sure knowledge concerning the things you've been taught. Apparently, Theophilus was struggling too. So it's not only, I mean, by the time we get to Zechariah's doubt, we've already been prepared for the notion of doubt. In fact, Luke says the whole story, the whole book is written with this in mind. Now, let me try to say something. It's kind of complex. I'm going to, I want to make it as clear as I can, but just pray for me. Hope me I can, I can get this out. When Luke wrote his gospel, Jesus was up for grabs. A lot of people were saying, Christians were saying, Jesus is the climactic work of God in this world. And if you want to be in line with God, 
align yourself with Jesus. But all through Luke's gospel, that is met with hostility. And in Luke's gospel, the primary resistor to that is the devil. And the devil resists God's work in Christ in two primary ways. One through demons. All through Luke's gospel, demons resist Jesus, shriek, fight against him. The other way that the devil resists the work of God in this world is by convincing people that Jesus is not on God's team. And therefore, those people believe it is in, that, that they have to resist Jesus in order to be loyal to God. And they eventually kill him in order to pull that off. Now, here's what I want you to see. We live in a moment in time where there's a lot of argument about God. Who God is, which path is lined up with him. Who's being faithful to God and who is not. And what I want you to see is this is not new. 500 years ago when it was virtually impossible not to believe in God, that was new. The moment we're in now is much closer to the environment Luke was writing in. Why is Luke chapter 1 verse 5 to 25 an echo chamber of the Old Testament? Because Luke is saying what God is doing in Jesus, this is the same God who is the creator of the world who's been at work all along, and he's working consistent with the way he's been working all along. Here's what I'm trying to get at. See, some of us do not have the confidence to say this particular view of who God is and of his ways in the world is right. And every other view is wrong. We live in a moment where many people feel like you cannot have confidence about these issues. Instead, you've got to play the humble card. You've got to say, you know what? Um, This is my view. Or this is my tradition's view. But do you see what Luke is doing on a larger level? He's making the case you can know and you can have confidence in a particular view of who God is and what God is doing in this world. What about you? Can you speak confidently about God, who he is, Jesus, that he is the way, the truth, and the life? G.K. Chesterton, he said, what we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Humility is moved from the organ of ambition and settled on the organ of conviction. In other words, we used to be, we used to lack confidence and be critical and skeptical of our ambitions. And now we're critical and skeptical of our convictions. He said, modesty, humility is moved from the organ of ambition and settled on the organ of conviction where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about his own ambitions, 
but undoubting about the truth. And we've reversed that. And then listen to what he says. We're on the road to producing a race of men too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication tables. Why is it that we can be adamantly confident about things we should be modest about? And we have lost the ability to be confident in the truth of God. St. Thomas Aquinas put it this way. A human being is much more certain, should be much more certain about what he hears from God, who cannot be deceived, than what he sees by his own reason, because his reason can be deceived. We live in a moment where we have been convinced that science gives us irrefutable facts And religion is opinion. And Luke is making the bold claim in the midst of a far more polytheistic environment, a far more pluralistic environment. He's standing right in the middle of that and say, we can know the truth and we can be confident in it. And there's Zechariah right there, one of the doubters. And God gives him the gift of confidence. And for Zechariah, the gift of confidence in an ironic twist comes through a discipline of punishment. So I'll, I'm, I'm going to end with this one. So we've, we see that God delivers the faithful by inviting them to participate with him in his work in the world. And God delivers the suffering by giving them unmerited favor. And God delivers a doubter by giving him confidence. Do you need deliverance? Have any of these hit on an area in your life where over the course of Advent, you can cry out to God, deliver me. Let's pray.